0: Just caught a glimpse of what was happening there with Kareen. It was like a karate chop or something crossing the aisle. You're, you're online, you're missing out. I just, just want you to know. Um, but anyway, um, if you would open up your Bibles and join me in our reading today. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Um, and if you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, take the one out in front of you. Um, it's good to have it in front of you, um, but it's also good if you don't own one. We want to give it to you. Um, that Bible in front of you is yours, and we have specifically have a special fund. It's called the Dwayne Arnold Bible Fund, um, and it funds all of the Bibles here at St. John's so that they can be given away uh, to those who need the hope of the Word of God with them wherever they go. So join me now as we read God's Word together, John chapter 8, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, "You Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, where is your Father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would also know my father. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alyssa, my wife, and I, we've been, our family have been in our current home here in Elkhorn for eight years, and it wasn't, we weren't the first family to live in it, and so when we moved in, there was a list of things that we had to do, um, you know, in order to, to make it functional for us, and then there was also a list of things that we said when we moved in, we're going to do, and eight years later, still haven't gotten done. How many of you can relate? All right, good, good. Anybody who lives anywhere, right? Like, we all have this list, and for me... One of the li- things on the list that I decided to tackle just this last week was the light in our master bedroom closet. Uh, now, here, here's, here's the problem. Ever since we moved in, it has been intermittent at best. Um, I, I think it had something to do with the fluorescent light. I think it had something to do with the ballast because it was always a surprise when I flipped the switch whether the light would actually turn on or not. Um, but the reason that I haven't fixed it for eight years is because early on, I learned that if I just tap it a little bit, it turns on. I mean, you're laughing because I know you know what I'm saying, right? Don't you have things you tap or you kick or you whatever, and they work, and so, so I haven't fixed it. I've just tapped it. The problem is that over those eight years... The tapping has become strategic pounding, and the pounding, if that doesn't turn the light on, becomes an an anxious switch flipping, right, like I'll do this a lot, and if that doesn't work, I've got some choice words I can't share in church that I share with that light, and I don't think they help the light, but they help me. Because in the morning, I'm usually running late and I'm trying to get dressed. And what ends up happening is eventually the light just decides to turn on or it doesn't and I just get dressed in the dark. So if I don't match, you know that it was one of those days. So this past Monday, I decided enough is enough. Alyssa and I, we interact with this light at least twice a day, right? When you get ready in the morning and when you go to bed at night, this is an important thing. I am going to fix it. And so I had my Tim Taylor moment. Remember Home Improvement uh, from the 90s? Because I ripped this thing out and I replaced it with an LED fixture and they're like five times brighter than the lights that were in before. And and so I put this, this new light in and it went from unreliable at best to not only consistent, but it's actually sort of blinding, especially in the morning when you wake up. I see things that I didn't see before. I have outfits I didn't know Existed right? It's like, wow, look at what's going on in here. It even feels a little bit bigger. But the more that my eyes adjust to the light, the more grateful I am that I replaced it. I'm literally, it sounds silly, right? But twice a day I'd flip that switch and I never knew if it was going to turn on. And so it's been almost a week now and I am less stressed out (laughs) when I wake up in the morning and I flip that switch. I feel better about getting ready for bed at night. And it's all because I have a new light. And I didn't do this for a sermon illustration, but it sure applied as later on in the week I was reading God's word and I read the words we read just a minute ago. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And the Greek word for light is is a simple word for light. It's it's the same kind of light that comes out of a, a candle or comes from a lamp or comes from the sun or comes from my closet light fixture. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it poses a question for you and for me this morning. What area in your life, in your world, would you describe as dark? What place is, is feeling like darkness right now that feels even darker than my closet light? Or, or maybe there's a light that you used to live by. Maybe it was emitted by a person or a place or something that you leaned on. And in recent days, that light has become more inconsistent. It's flickering. Maybe it's even gone out completely. I want you to think about that place. Because my prayer for you this morning is that you will see that Jesus' words are for you too. That he is the light. And it wasn't just for those listening 2,000 years ago. But he wants to be the light for you. And for me as well. It's it's the second of, of a series of statements that, that we're studying as we go through this season of Lent. This is the second week of Lent, forty days plus Sundays that lead us to Easter, and we're walking through the I am statements that Jesus makes throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, he uses these statements to describe himself, who he is. And so last Sunday, if you missed last Sunday, I began by asking you, how would you fill in the blank? I am blank. And there were all sorts of different answers that we could give, right? You might say, I am Tom. You might say your name, right? And that's good because I am inform is informative. You're informing others Of who you are. You might say something that ends up being influential to the people around you. I am hungry. I am thirsty. I am scared. What should I be scared about, right? Because I am is influential. And it's also intimate. If you went up to somebody and you said, I am guilty. I am feeling shame. I am sad, right? Uh, I am overjoyed. It's intimate. It's, It's inviting you in to a deeper awareness of who that person is. And if that's true, for all of the ways that you could answer the question, I am blank, then how much truer is it for the way Jesus answers the question, I am. And so last Sunday we started with the first one, and that's in John 6. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the bread of life. And we learned a number of things in history. We learned that the words I am themselves come from the second book in the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. It's the story of God's people, Israel, moving from slavery in Egypt to the promised land, to freedom. And it was Jesus, under no uncertain terms, tying himself To the name that God gives Moses and their people to describe him by. This name that we end up deriving Yahweh, the Hebrew word Yahweh from, for God. And so under no uncertain terms, when Jesus says, I am, it's different than when you say, I am. He is saying, I am God. And then he's showing you what that looks like. And so he says, I am bread. And we see that bread is also tied to Exodus. God provided bread, he provided manna every day as they were moving in that journey through the wilderness. They would wake up in the morning and manna would come up from the ground. And so they were provided food. They were provided what they needed as they led, as God led them to the promised land. And, and I pointed this out, but I want to say it again. It shows us that we believe in a God that is intimately concerned and connected with our physical needs. And I say that because... So often when you think of God, right, you think of God as being disconnected. I mean, it's even just the concept of coming to church. This is a good thing because we're together, right? But it doesn't mean that God is only in this place, as if God only is in a certain place and not in other places. And when we pray, we often think of God as being distant and not close, but that's not true. He is close. And sometimes we think of God as only being concerned about distant things, as if God is only occupied with with what happens after we die, for example, when in reality, he cares if you haven't had a sandwich today. He cares if you're hungry. He cares about our physical needs, and then he also ties all of what is going on right here and right now in this place to its eternal and spiritual implications. We see that back in Exodus, and we see it in the way that Jesus describes Himself. And so when we go back to Exodus, not only does God provide physical food for his people to eat because they need physical food, he also provides them with direction in the form of light. If you go to chapter 13, you got this great scene in the Red Sea, and they don't know where they're going to be going and all of this stuff, and God is leading them, right? He's led them out of slavery. They've been slaves for 400 years, which means they don't know where they're going. They don't know the direction. They don't know anything. And so this is what God provides for them so that they will know how to get through the wilderness. 13.21, it says, By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night it was a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. And what we see here in Exodus is that God is showing us how he is weaving together The perfect creation that God has created at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, God created everything beautiful and good and perfect. And and all of the provisions for all of our needs were provided in that place. And then they got unwound by this thing we call sin. And we see God already starting to bind those things, weave those things back together again. And so how does that apply to light? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, very first verses in the story of creation. This is one of my favorite places in all of scripture. This is the Hebrew creation story, passed by generation to generation to describe the way in which the one true God created the world. And in verse 1, it says it was in the beginning, very first verse, the very first book of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, you hear that, and it sounds poetic, and it is. But for somebody who is hearing it in the first, in these first generations, when this story was originally told, what they would have seen is a terrifying picture. What this is, is an untamed abyss of darkness. I mean, can you imagine being out in an ocean where there is no light, where there is no creation? All it is, is dark and deep. That is the way. ...that the beginning is described. And it reminded me of just a week and a half ago. How many people here lost power when the ice storms came... A number of you, about half the last service lost power. Um, I woke up the next morning and the Lake Geneva um, Fire Department had posted photos of downtown Lake Geneva on the night of the ice storm when all the power went out at 1.30 in the morning. Uh, They took pictures downtown and they were some of the most eerie pictures that I've ever seen uh, of that area. There's one in particular here. Check that out. Everything's just dark. If you didn't see the ambulance there, you wouldn't even know what time this, this could be a hundred years ago, right? Right. You, you don't, you, it was hard with some of the photos that they shared to, to discern like where is that picture coming from, when was that picture taken, what is going on, and, and the only thing that's different between that photo and another photo that you might go downtown Lake Geneva and take today is the absence of of light. See, it changes things. It feels eerie. It feels unwound. It feels deep. It feels dark. And that is the way that Genesis describes the very beginning of creation. And it's in the very first creative act of God that he does this. God said, verse 3, let there be light. And there was light And God saw that light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Do you see that this is a lot more than just about light? It's a lot more than God shining a cosmic flashlight. It's about more than just hanging the sun in the sky. It is about illuminating an untamed abyss... And bringing the beginnings of order and peace and new life. None of which can take place without light. Anybody who's excited about gardening, especially today, right? The birds are starting to sing. We, we know that it's coming. We could still get like two feet of snow next week. But it will be here sooner rather than later. And you know that plants don't grow without light. Humans need light. I I was talking with somebody at the first service a couple of weeks ago. She spent about a month down south in January because she has found that she feels better in January in Wisconsin when she can get out of Wisconsin and go to a place where she can experience the light. A couple of weeks ago, I shared with you, I was at a pastor's conference in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was telling Katie, our administrative coordinator, she and her husband and their family, they lived there for like eight years, and I said, everybody just seems unusually like happy there. They're just, they're just very friendly in Phoenix. And she said, maybe it's the vitamin D. <laughs> because so many people have moved to that area because of the light. Because they want to live in the light. Have you ever... You ever tried to draw a picture in the dark? It would have been too complicated, but I thought it would be fun if we could have maybe covered all the windows this morning and I could have handed out paint and, and I could have handed out, it would have been really messy too. But, but just imagine, just make this room pitch black and hand it out to everybody paints and, and a piece of paper and then tell you just to go at it and make this nice drawing. And then we would turn the lights up and we'd all laugh. <laughs> because you, you might try really, really hard. To create something, and it would be nothing like what you could create if you were in the light. And so God creates light, He brings light into the darkness at the very beginning of Genesis. And then in Exodus, He gives Israel a pillar of light, to guide them through the dark abyss of the wilderness. And then when the prophets spoke of the coming Messiah, the one who's going to save the world, they said the words that we remember each and every Christmas, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. And all of this leads us to Jesus. The very beginning of the Gospel of John says that Jesus was there from the very beginning. He is the light. He was with God, verse 2, in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you see what John's trying to do? I'm not just giving you a history lesson. He is connecting the dots from the very beginning of history. God was there. He was bringing order through light. He was leading Israel by a pillar of light and now God is coming into the world through Jesus who is the light. You could say that Jesus lights up the room when he comes in. You ever known somebody that that's what you would say about them, that they light up the room? I was thinking about that phrase, and I thought, you know, there's very few compliments I think anybody could share with anyone that that would be better than to say to someone that you light up the room when you come in. If you really mean it, if you think about what that phrase means, right? Because because to to light up a room is, is to suggest that a person literally illuminates Everything around them, every person around them, to to be light in a room is to be somebody who's a good listener, somebody who asks good questions, somebody who draws out of others their thoughts and their personality, somebody who lifts us out of our own darkness and grief and sadness through their humor, right? You would say that about a person who's funny, right? You'd say they light up the room, or through their kindness. See, in its basic form, you know that light is there, and it's not because the light is calling attention to itself, it's because it's illuminating everything and everyone else around it. Friends, that's what Jesus came to do. That's what Jesus came to be. And it's why he said in John chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. But we're jumping into kind of an argument that's going on and it's between Jesus and the religious leaders over who he is. And so the Pharisees challenge him and they said, Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. They're challenging Jesus. They want more proof. And yet, when light shines in dark places, the light... Is the only proof you need. I saw this this week when I was changing out my my light fixture. I, I, of course, you know the light didn't fit. The new one didn't fit in the same place as the holes of the old one because that's how that works, right? I ripped it out thinking it would, and it didn't. So I had to draw to drill a new hole. And so I drilled this new hole. And as I drilled this new hole, I saw that there was light coming in behind the wall from a place that I could not see. (laughs) And there was someplace else, somewhere in the wall, that was opened up to a different room or a different place where there was light coming in. I never found exactly where that light came from, but I didn't need any more proof than seeing that the light existed. The proof is in what it's illuminating around it. And so Jesus, I mean, this is a deep passage, and there's so many different ways to take it, but, but Jesus is saying the proof is all around me. I am the proof. The Father and I, we both testify to this, but maybe the greatest proof that there is is in the example of the way in which Jesus' light shines on the people around him that are living in darkness. And there's a story at the very beginning, right before Jesus says this in, in John chapter 8, verse 2. You've probably heard this story in a lot of different places. It's it's the story of Jesus and the woman that's caught in adultery. Have you heard that before? This is where we find it. Let me just, just read it to you, and then we'll talk about it. Said, at dawn, he appeared again at the temple courts. This is Jesus, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. And the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say, Jesus? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, this story reeks of darkness, and it's in so many places that you don't necessarily see right there on the surface. It's so much deeper than you probably think. First of all, these religious men, if they did indeed catch this woman in the act of adultery, they can make a legal case based on their interpretation. If you don't believe me, look it up. It's in Leviticus 20, verse 10. It's in it's in Deuteronomy 22, 22. They could put her... To death, But here's the problem. If you flip your Bible and you take a look at the law that they're using as a basis to to act in the way that they're acting, what you'll see in that law is that those verses call for both the man and the woman to suffer the consequences. And you have to ask yourself, where is the man? Where's the man, right? I I keep it PG here, right? Doesn't it take two to tango? Where is the other party. Why did they decide just to drag the woman? Okay, so that's that's one part of darkness that you might not pick up on right away. The second darkness that I see here is if Jesus came to fulfill the law. He said that. That's what he did. He said, I came to fulfill the law. I didn't come to abolish it. He didn't come to abandon it. He came to fulfill it. And if he came to fulfill all of the law and the prophets, as he said he did, and if all of the law and the prophets hinge on love, because that's what Jesus said, right? It's all about loving God, and it's loving others. If that's true, this scene is the furthest thing From loving this woman. This is the furthest thing from loving this woman. And I'm not calling into question whether or not it was right or wrong. If she was caught in adultery, adultery is wrong, right? But put yourself in the situation. We've all made mistakes. We've all been guilty of something, right? And it's bad enough when you come to a realization that I have messed up. And it's worse in that moment when you get caught, isn't it? And when you feel the guilt and the shame, it can be overpowering even when you are all alone. And so, can you imagine being in that same place that we've all been? And having these men that you don't even know ripping you out of that situation, throwing you into the middle of a public court in front of all of these people, and all of which they don't have you in mind. They don't care about you. They're not concerned about justice. They're not concerned about drawing you out of a dark place. They're actually using you as a tool to try to catch their own enemy. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. Yeah, you know, I think about the way that we deal with, with convicted murderers in our country. We would treat them at their sentencing with more dignity than we do this woman here in this place. And it's the temple. It's the house of God. This is a terribly dark moment. And so they drag this woman in front of everyone, in front of Jesus. How does he respond? It says in verse 6, Jesus bent down and he started to write in the dirt on the ground and there's two things that are really significant here in this verse the first one is jewish men never bent down in front of anyone but especially not a woman that has just been accused and caught of committing Adultery, And yet Jesus bends down. Okay, that's one thing you might not catch. The second one is the one we all wonder, right? What was he writing? <laughs> right? What was he writing? And we don't know. Nobody knows, but but the, the, there's, there's some differences as we look at some of the manuscripts. The earliest manuscripts of John don't even include this story. And then later manuscripts do include this story. And then some even added at that particular place that Jesus was writing the sins of, of the accusers in the ground, in the dirt, in that particular moment. And I think about that. I don't know if it's true or not, but I think, man, what is the one word that if Jesus wrote that one word right now in front of you, you would know exactly what he's talking about? Because we all have one word, don't we? There's a dark place in our life. There's a place that we were guilty. There's a place that we've messed up. That that if, if Jesus wrote down just one word, it would only take one word. You would know before he even finished the word, right? You would see it in the ground and you go, he's talking about me. Whoa, how does he know that? Nobody knows that. You see that word and immediately you are dragged into that dark place. That bad decision. Your worst day, your greatest regrets, your moments of utter failure. And the truth is Jesus has a word for all of us, right? There's a word. You know what that word is in your head. There's a word for every single one of us. And if you're far from God when you see that word, you haven't heard the word of God that says that you are forgiven and redeemed and loved and drawn out of that place. If you've never heard any of those things, that word would feel blinding. It would be like me taking a flashlight and shoving it in your face in the early morning. Light that is blinding you in a place that has been dark for a very, very long time. And that's exactly what happens because he asks this next question, verse 7, he says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw stone. Because if The law says that she should be killed, and by the same interpretation, so should you. That's what Jesus has established. No matter what he's writing, that is exactly what he has established. And again, he stoops down and he writes on the ground, verse 8, And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Do you know what Jesus did here? He confronted their darkness. Not the darkness of the woman. He confronted the darkness of all of the men that dragged her out and gathered around and picked up stones. He confronted the darkness in their judgmental hearts. He shined light into their personal sin. And it is a moment of pure grace. Because if they got what they went to the temple courts to get, if they got what they wanted, this woman would have been killed and they would have walked away, not only not forgiven for their original sins, but they would have walked away having committed even more sin. They would have been guilty of judgment and Murder And friends, Jesus did not come into the world to add sin. He came into the world to take sin away. And so what a gift that he gives these judgmental religious Pharisees, isn't it? But the sad truth of the story is we don't know how they respond to that gift. We don't know how they walked away. We don't know if they walked away feeling the gift of light and forgiveness and love and grace or if they just walked away exposed and guilty. Some of them absolutely did because they were so angry that eventually they killed them. And the reason is because light can be blinding. Reminds me, I've got 5 kids, right? The younger ones, they 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 learn as they get older, but you know, they all get up really early, don't they? <laughs> And sometimes they'll come into your bedroom, right? And they'll turn on the light. (laughs) And what do you do? You have to make a choice, right? You have to make the same choice when you're in the light of God. You've got to choose. Do I want to put it out? Do I want to turn it off? Do I want to run away? Do I want to cover my eyes? Or do I want to adjust and live in the light? And I don't know what the men did, but I know what the woman did. I know what the woman did. She lived in the light. Look at what she did. Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She says, No one, sir. And neither do I. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go and leave your life of sin. And here's what we learn. Jesus didn't come to throw stones. He came to shine light. He didn't come to throw stones. He came to shine light. And I want to be really clear because I've preached on this and I've heard this preach and I've read this story and I've interpreted it in so many ways. And this is one way that I've interpreted it. You read this and you go, ooh, who is the one person in that room, in that temple court who had every right to stone this woman? Who's the one person? Anybody, Sunday school answer. Jesus, right? And so you read this and you're like, ooh, she really dodged one there, didn't she? <laughs> right? Right? She could have died, right? Right? Jesus is without sin. He could have really nailed her. But you've got to ask yourself, look at the details. Who is the one person in the temple courts that never even named what she did? Who is the one person that never even spoke an accusation? Sunday school answer, anybody? Jesus. He never even says it. He doesn't have to drop a rock. You know Why? Because he never picked one up in the first place. He never picked one up in the first place. And the reason why is because he loves her. And when you love someone, you don't throw stones at them. Is that not a truth we need to hear today? Is that not a truth? You might not throw rocks out loud. I know I throw a lot of rocks in my head. Jesus came to shine light, not throw stones, because he loves us. And, and the same is true for you and for me. He did not come into this world to condemn the world, but he came into this world to save the world. That's John three seventeen. It's my favorite verse. Because people read John 3, 16, right? They see it on signs and billboards. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And we read that verse and we go, so you better believe in Jesus or you're going to die. And it's as if Jesus knew that we were going to make billboards that said that. And so it says in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. We were already going to die. He came to save us. He came to take the stones away. And so it's no coincidence that by the very end of chapter 8, in the middle it says, on the light of the world, at the beginning you've got the story of the stones that are about to be thrown to the woman, and Jesus saves this woman, right? He saves all of them. He shines the light in the darkness. And then by the end of chapter 8, it says, they picked up stones to stone Jesus. Same chapter. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple Grounds. Jesus wouldn't be stoned that day. But not too long from now, he will be beaten and whipped and dragged before an unjust court. In a public scene that is infinitely more humiliating than what this woman went through, he will be nailed to a cross and hung on a tree, naked, physically naked, for all the world to see. Jesus will be killed, and the world will go dark. But don't forget what John said at the beginning. The darkness has never put out the light. And three days later, Jesus will rise from the grave. Amen? because of that John will write this too in first John 1 he says this is the message that we've heard from Jesus this is the message that we've heard from him and we declare to you god is light in him there is no darkness at all if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet throw stones walk in the darkness we lie we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son purifies us from all sins. Friends, this is the season of Lent. The invitation to you and to me is that if you are walking in darkness, do what I did this week with the fixture in my closet. Rip it out and walk in the light. Join me right now as we pray.